good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Pastor Matt. I'm an associate pastor here overseeing discipleship and youth. It's good to be here with you. We've been going through a series called Healthy Relationships. Our elders believe this is something important for us to talk about because we believe that sin has disordered our passions, it has disordered our relationships really at every level. Everything for the sin is the reason ultimately why nations go to war. It's also the reasons why husbands and wives disagree. It's the reasons why there are fights and why there's bickering in business and in school at every, at every level, right? Sin is the problem. But we also believe that God gives Christians, gives His people direction and wisdom and commands in His Word so that we can be a peaceable people, so we can live well with others, that He can restore these relationships. He goes further, though. God doesn't just give us a list of helpful advice. He actually gives believers grace so we can live these things out. So we believe that when Christ's Word is central in our homes, there will be, and, and we are obeying Christ's Word, we will see fruit from that in our relationships with our spouses, with our children. We believe that is also true in our church, and we believe when Christians are living Christ-like as lights, as salt in the world, it will have an effect in the greater world as well. And so we're taking a few weeks talking about what the Scripture has to say about that. We looked last week from Romans 12 and how we are to show honor to one another. Today, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, talking about the need for humility, cultivating humility. Humility is a word that comes up often in Christian thought in the New Testament, to, to be humble, to humble ourselves. But what actually is humility? I think there's a couple ways we can define it. I'm actually going to give a two-part definition. The first, I think, is that when we're talking about humility, we're talking about thinking rightly of yourself and your condition, or rightly of yourself and your station. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're supposed to assume a posture of hating yourself Oh, I'm not that good. I'm just terrible. That's, that's not necessarily what we mean by humility. You can actually fake humility by, you know, talking poorly about yourself, thinking low about yourself. We don't think that's actually what it is. Um, it's thinking rightly of yourself, rightly assuming, uh, like, where you are actually at with the Lord. Um, understanding both your gifts, but also understanding your weaknesses and your sinfulness and your need for grace. So humility in this sense is oftentimes really thought of as you're not elevating yourself more than you should. You're not thinking more highly of yourself than you actually are. You're not trying to elevate and glorify yourself, right? We believe that there's a difference between confidence and pride. Confidence says, I'm, I, I can do this. I, I have the ability and the skill. I can do this. Pride is, <laughs> I can't lose, and I'm better than all of you. That, that, there's a difference between the two right? So humility in some sense is thinking rightly of yourself. But I actually think that definition needs a little more to it. I think humility goes a little further than that. Humility requires a voluntary lowering of yourself in order to serve others, trusting that God will exalt you in the proper time and manner. Voluntary, it's, it, humility is a voluntary lowering of yourself in order to serve others. 
Because we trust, pride is trying to elevate yourself, glorify yourself, often at the expense of others. Humility says, you know what, I'm going to become the servant of others and trust that when God thinks it's appropriate, he'll exalt me. When God thinks the timing is right, then he'll, he'll, he will bring me the glory um, that he thinks that I deserve. And I think Christians specifically have to adopt this uh, this definition because it is what Christ commanded, and as we'll see, it's what Christ did himself. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Trusting that, he says, and uh, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You know, sometimes we say that the, the, the kingdom of God is the upside-down kingdom, and I don't think that's the case. The kingdom of God is the right-side-up kingdom. It's actually thinking of things rightly. The world is the upside-down kingdom, getting everything wrong, trying to elevate ourselves, saying, if you want to be great, you must master everyone else. You must set yourself above others. You must claw your way to the top. You must... Jesus says, no. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. That is Humility. And humility is essential to Christian unity, as we're going to see today. As we're talking about healthy relationships, our focus primarily is in the church today, humility within the church, and by extension also in the family. So it is essential that we cultivate humility in our lives after the example of Jesus Christ. So if you will uh, read along with me, I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you are due. Lord Jesus, as we look today at your word, you humbled yourself, you made yourself low, you became the Lord of glory, the servant of all. And you have earned the name that is above all names. So as we gather together in the name of Jesus, God, would you teach us today? Help us to be like your son, to look to your son, to give him glory and to imitate him and to obey him. Bless us, Lord. Help us to be a unified body of humble believers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
So uh, this famous passage in Philippians, we can really break into two sections. The first four verses are really talking about the idea of uh, Paul is making a plea for his church, for this church of Philippi, to be healthy. And if they are to be healthy, they have to be unified. They have to come together and be of one accord. They have to come together and be of one mind. And if that is going to happen, they have to be humble. They have to cultivate an attitude of humility where they are thinking of themselves rightly. They're considering one another as equals in Christ, but then going a step further and saying, you know what, we need to have a preference for those we need, for around us. We need to think of the, the needs of others around us. Consider others as even more significant than ourselves. And it is by that humility that you will establish unity and maintain it. So we look, particularly starting in verse 2, Paul urges the church in Philippi to be unified. The way he describes it is of being of one mind, or having the same mind, being of full accord. And this is important because the church is a unique thing in the world, because it is people who are gathered out of all different kinds of backgrounds, people who are um, all different ages, people who have all different likes, different different. Um, stations in the world, rich and poor, different jobs, everything else. What unites us? Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, not much else. The thing that unites Christians is our faith in the Lord. And there might be, because of that, many other reasons to disagree, to even have division. But you remember what Jesus said about division. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus wants his church to be unified, to have one mind, because if everyone is living off of their own opinions, seeking their own agenda, doing their own thing, living pridefully, then the church, Jesus' church, which he paid for with his own blood, will be divided. And may no such thing happen. Unity, especially among such a diverse group of people, requires agreement. And it can't be based on superficial things like just we have, you know, pride in our, in, our, in, our, uh, in our local sports teams or we all have the same, you know, music that we like or we, we share similar culture. It can't be based on skin color or other things like that. It has to be on things that are deep. We have to share the same convictions and values and mission. The church doesn't have to agree on everything and we won't agree on everything, both at, when Paul's writing to Philippi but also now. But the church needs to be moving in the same direction and come to some agreement. Paul wants the church in Philippi and the Holy Spirit wants the church today to be unified in thinking because the way we think will dictate the way we behave towards other people. Unity requires agreement, oneness of mind, common accord on purpose. The less a group agrees, the less unity they will have. And this is true on on every level between a husband and wife and even basic things like how are we going to raise our kids, how are we going to do our schooling, or the, the age-old debate, where are we going to eat after church, <laughs> right? There can be great division among those things. You all agree we want to eat, but where will we eat? And you've seen incredible fights maybe based on so silly a question. This is true everywhere in a school, in a business, in a nation, and of course in a church, and Living Hope, we love visitors. We love that many of you, you're visiting today, and you've maybe only been here, this is your first time, or maybe you've come a few times, and 
I hope that you can sing with us today, praise the Lord alongside of us, grow in the knowledge of God, and you're encouraged as you worship with us. We also, we, we hope that the Lord would lead you, that you would get more involved, that you might even become a committed participant. That's what we call members here at Living Hope. I tell you, the elders and deacons always love it when somebody meets with an elder and, and goes through the commitment for participation and signs it and says, yes, I want to join. I want to be part of this. It's exciting for us. And, and because of that, since we value unity, we ask our members to sign on to, to agree to a couple things. Our four-part uh, mission statement, right? We want to experience God, embrace truth, establish community, and engage the world. That's what we believe God has called us to. And so we said, hey, if you want to join, do you agree with that? Our, our values, our doctrinal statement, particularly we have a 13-part belief statement uh, that we ask people to be part of, to believe in, uh, as well as taking part in our ministry is committing to receive from spiritual leadership. Um, in this way, we seek to be, in some sense, of one mind, going in the same direction. Um, and there's room for disagreement. There's room for preference. There's room for opinion. There's room for for places where, you know, we're going to have different emphases. There's things that we say are closed-handed and things that we say are very open-handed. And that's okay. But we all say, you know, we want to be of one mind. We at least want to be going in the same direction, having the same vision, because we want to be unified. And some, some people come to Living Hope and they say, hey, I like the church, but there's just a few things that I can't get on board on. I have maybe different doctrinal convictions or different, different things that I'm, uh, the Lord's leading me to do. And you know what? That's okay, too. You know, God uh, may lead you to go to a different church. Maybe this isn't the church you'll be at the member at. And if, that, and if the Lord leads you to another local gathering, maybe that'll be a better place for you where your gifts will be used and you'll thrive. But a living hope in every church really wants to have unity, so we seek to be in agreement, to have one mind about the major things. The cool thing is, is we also have unity. We just talked about Pray SYC. We want to have unity with the greater body of Christ where, yeah, we, we, we may have some disagreements in doctrinal areas or practices or emphases or things like that, but, man, we're, we stand upon Jesus Christ and we preach the gospel. We want to be unified even as a greater body. And so Christ desires that his people would be unified, have the same mind, have the same vision and purpose. But more than just thinking the same, we need to have the same love for one another. We need to consider that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are equal before the throne of God, and it's essential that we're going to see each other as such if we're going to be healthy. We discussed a little bit of this last week. So he establishes we need to be unified, but then he goes further in verses 3 and 4 and says how this is going to be maintained. When he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Unity requires that we consider other, ourselves equal to one another, but humility dictates that we consider others more significant than ourselves. Because really there is no unity that you're going to maintain in a family, in a church, in a business, in a nation if there is not humility because pride, the opposite of humility, destroys it. If someone comes in thinking, ah, I'm better than everyone else, and he elevates himself for, over others, it's going to destroy the unity a church can have. You will start to begin to think of others as less important than yourselves. Their opinions don't matter. Um, their concerns are unimportant. James warns about this in chapter 2. 
uh, of his letter. He talks about this scenario where a rich man comes into a congregation, and this person is warmly received. He's offered the nicest seat. He's welcomed. Everyone is glad he's there. He, he may give a generous offering, this is, or he may otherwise add class or dignity or, or notoriety to this meeting, especially in the early church when they were a marginalized people. This would have been seen as a really good thing. He's useful. But then he describes, well, what happens when a poor man comes into the church? And, he, and no one wants to talk to him or sit next to him or deal with him because maybe he's bringing a lot of problems or a lot of need or he may require resources. Of course, this is all based on appearances. And the Holy Spirit writing through James says this is wicked and ungodly and unjust. And this is how people act when we don't live according to humility but prideful thinking, selfish ambition. It has no place in the church. Pride causes us to think of people based on their usefulness. We don't see people as people, but as tools. And this is not the way of Christ. You should settle in your mind that we are one people in the body of Christ, none more important than the other, that, that, unity and, that there's unity and equality in the church. But then he says, go a step further and count others, consider others as more significant than yourselves. And this is where we talk about there's a voluntary lowering of your own assessment of yourself. And this is hard because of sin. It's an attitude that belongs to those of us who have been born of God, but it needs to grow and develop. Humility is something that has to be put into action and cultivated and exercised. Think about this. When you walk into a room... What is your general attitude? And there could be w- many ways of thinking about this, but do you like to arrive late so you can say, all right, everybody, here I am. <laughs> I mean, you don't say that, right? But is that kind of your attitude? Or do you come in and you're like, oh, there you are. <laughs> like you come in, you're thinking more of, of other people. While in conversation, do you tend to listen to what people, others are saying, or do you kind of do that thing where you're half listening and you're just preparing what you're going to say, and you're just waiting for the place to cut them off. Do you like to steer the conversation? Like you're, you're in a group, and you're in a group of three or four people, and you're, the conversation's going one way, and you're like, ah, I don't want to talk about this. I'm just going to start a new conversation. <laughs> I confess, I've done that from time to time. Do you see people as either supporting or in getting the, in the way of your agenda? Do you judge by appearances? Do you consider of others of more importance than yourself? It's amazing, you know, Paul, who many of us would consider the greatest apostle, maybe below Peter or John, but he considered himself the least apostle. I mean, we're reading his letter right now, a couple thousand years later, but in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul had a very, in some sense, real but also uh, assessment of himself, but also a lowering. I am the least of all the apostles. I mean, there are some, there are some of the twelve who you hear about in the Gospels and never hear about again. Paul says he's the least. Do you struggle with prideful thinking? And that, if that's the case, weigh your heart against God's law and commands. It's one of the reasons why Christians can continue to read the law. Right? If you rarely repent of sin, if you're not studying your soul, consider why not. 
When you consider yourself, do you pay adequate attention to your weaknesses, to your flaws, to your sins, or you just kind of gloss over them? Are you able to pray, Lord, seek my heart, search me, see if there's anything in me that is untoward, any, any wrong-headed way within me? God, search my heart, see if there's any sin. When you think about other people, do you focus on their flaws or do you focus on their excellencies? I think it's, we, by a general rule, we should tend to be harder on ourselves than on others. We should show a lot more grace towards others. We see George, if you guys know the story, there's a man named George Whitfield in church history. He was a great English Calvinistic preacher. He traveled from England to America during the 18th century. Uh, he was a famous open-air preacher and actually a friend of Benjamin Franklin. He wasn't able to convert Benjamin Franklin, but they did have a relationship. And Franklin was really like enamored with the ability of him just to be a great orator. And he, he actually paced out one time and tried to calculate without microphones how he could preach to up to 30,000 people in the open air. He just had that kind of voice. He was also a contemporary and friend of John and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist Church and also Wesleyanism. Uh, John Wesley, though, was an Arminian in his beliefs and, uh, and critiqued Whitfield's doctrine of predestination. This and a few other reasons actually caused them to have a very hard split. They had disagreements about this and, and several other issues. These two great giants of the faith and in Christian history, particularly in American history, had a strained relationship for years. However, at one point, someone went up to George Whitfield and asked him, you know, do you think you're going to see John Wesley in heaven? You know, and the question is really asking, do you think John Wesley is actually saved because they disagreed so much? And listen to Whitfield's reply. He says, I fear not, for he will be so near to the eternal throne, and we are at such a distance, I shall hardly get a sight of him. That's a great, that's a great answer. Even though they disagreed, he saw him as a brother in Christ and said, he will be so much closer to God in glory, and I'm be so far back that I'm not even going to get a glimpse of him. We, have, we need to really have a humble idea of ourselves and consider others of greater worth and honor than ourselves, and then actually treat them as such. We see that this is the mind of Christ in verses 5 through 11. Earlier, we spoke about being single-minded, being of one mind, to think the same way. The question is, though, when we say be single-minded, whose mind, whose way of thinking are we to adopt? The most powerful? The most persuasive? The one with the keenest intellect or the most reasoned or maybe just the loudest person? The person with, or maybe just the majority opinion? No, we should be of one mind because we're all thinking like Christ. It is His way of thinking and living and loving that we ought to adopt. We should have that we have the mind of Christ, and that's the basis of our unity and humility. And I love this, that Christ is the one who's always teaching us. He's commander. He's our captain. He's the one who's giving the orders. But He's also the one who is our example, the standard of obedience. We never obey to a greater degree than Christ already has. We call Christ Lord so we should obey His Word, but we also call Him teacher and master in our example. And we see um, that when Christ came to earth, He took on human flesh, He demonstrated what true humility is all about. 
We, but we see in this passage that he was in the form of God, yet he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does all that mean? Well, Jesus is God, along with the Father and the Spirit. We sang about this earlier. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. There are three persons and one God, Trinity in unity, co-equal, co-eternal, sharing the same essence and nature, yet there are distinct persons. So when it says that Jesus was in the form of God, this is not meant to be taken as though Jesus was God-like, because later on it says that he took on the form of man, and Jesus was fully man. He didn't just appear to be a man. He assumed the full nature of humanity. But it does mean when it says that he's in the form of God, it's referring to his manner of existence and glory prior to coming to earth, taking on flesh. He was equal with the Father and the Spirit. Yet Jesus did not consider this status something to be grasped. That's an interesting way of putting it. What does that mean? The translator, if you have an ESV Bible, there's a footnote that actually helps us to understand. There's another way this could be translated that may help us understand. It says, he did not consider it a thing to be held onto for advantage. Maybe you've seen people in, in, in power in different levels of society, and they get to a place of a power and authority, maybe it's in the workplace or in the world or in the nation or in government or whatever it might be, and once they get to that certain level, there are benefits, there are privileges that they do not want to relinquish, right? I've earned this, and I, and I want to hold on to it, and sometimes people have a hard time letting go of that. Certainly when Jesus was in, was in glory in heaven, think about how he enjoyed all of that. God's glory is seen in heaven in all of his goodness, holiness, beauty, and righteousness. In heaven, God is celebrated and he honored as he should be. All who are in the presence of God in heaven, even right now, are glorifying him. Whitfield and Wesley are praising him together right now, as are all the saints, as are all the angels. He is treasured. He is served. In heaven, the will of God is always done without question, joyfully. Jesus even commands us to pray. He says, you know, pray in, in the Lord's Prayer, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in, in heaven, nobody questions his orders. Yes, amen, Lord. On earth, we should imitate that. No one disregards his word. It's cherished. And, and it's always done. In heaven, Jesus is receiving the glory, the praise, the honor that his majesty deserved. And he had every right to hold on to that. That's where he belongs, on the throne in glory. And yet Jesus did not hold on to that to his own advantage. The Lord let go of the glory of heaven in, under, in order to undergo humiliation. Consider it, when Jesus came to earth, he lived a largely anonymous existence for most of it. We know nothing for, of about 30 years of his life. People didn't see him, understand who he was, or recognize him. And those oftentimes who heard his teachings challenged him, called him a fool, mocked him, ignored him. He was insulted, he was resisted, he was abused, he was slandered. At any time, Jesus could have called down legions of angels to defend his glory and honor, and they would have come down gladly, bearing swords. And yet Jesus was silent. 
He hid his glory in the cloak of humanity. He endured suffering. He, inhabit, he who inhabited the praises of heaven for a time made his home among sinners. He taught people who would reject him. He fed those who would thanklessly abandon him. He washed the feet of those who would betray him. We see, in, imagine the difference here. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah is in the temple. He just beholds the hem of the robe of the glory of God and says, I am ruined. Holy, 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 right? And then we have, fast forward to where Jesus is washing the feet of Judas. He's washing the feet of his disciples. The incredible humiliation, the humbling that Jesus underwent because he did not want to hold on to the glory of heaven to his own advantage. Instead, we're told he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death. Jesus humbled himself. He was of one mind with the Father and the Spirit, and because of it, because of their plan that he would suffer for sins to redeem God's people, he was able to humble himself. He left the glory of heaven to become a servant. He considered our need for a Savior and sacrificed the privileges his glory for a, for a time. He did not cease to be God, but he did lay down the glory due his name and the recognition of his majesty. There is no one more significant than Christ. And yet he has acted as though there were, no, there were none more significant than us, according to his grace. How far did he go? Did Jesus just come down, make an appearance Right, you've seen this with politicians, they come in, they fly in, they shake hands with the hoi polloi, they kiss a few babies and they leave. Is that what Jesus did? No, he came and he was obedient even to, to death. Death on a cross. The most humiliating way to die, naked, put up as though uh, mocked. Christ humbled himself to come to a rebellious fallen earth that he might bring you to the glory of heaven. He took on the filth of your sins and mine that you can take on the riches of heaven and of his righteousness and glory. Believer, it is because of Christ's humility that you are saved. Here's 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Amen? Christ is our example and standard of what it means to be humble. He shows us what, how to lay, how it is to lay down yourself, and he leaves us without excuse. Christian, you and I, none of us have any excuse to not be humble. If Christ, who was so high, and there's none higher, became so low, what's your excuse for not doing likewise? What job is below you? Sorry, I'm too good to do that. That's not my job. That's somebody else's job. We see that Christ is our commander, but also our example. And so husbands, be humble in Christ, as Christ, in leading your wife and children. Likewise, wives, your children. Brothers and sisters, in the, in the home, in the natural family, and in the household of God, be humble. Consider the needs of one another and serve one another. Do not put your own needs or your own thoughts above that of your brother and sisters in Christ. I think it's impossible to maintain a prideful heart and to maintain love for others. 
Try loving someone while also being prideful. It doesn't work. It breaks down. So Christ is our example of humility. And finally, I know we're getting short on time. Christ is our example of humility but also of exaltation. In verses 9 through 11, we see that Christ received glory of another and greater kind because of his ministry on earth. The Father has so exalted Jesus that Jesus, the name that he assumed when he came to earth, is now the greatest name the earth will ever know. There is no greater word in any language than the name of Jesus. None can even enter heaven without the name of Jesus Christ on their lips and implanted in their hearts. His name is the passkey to glory, and it's the song of heaven. His name was unknown in in former times, but now it is the name. And although Jesus was often unnoticed, ignored, rejected, scorned, hated while he was walking the earth, and even today his name is often simply used as a curse word, there will come a day when everyone will be made to bow the knee to Jesus Christ at the name of Jesus. And all will confess it, either joyfully, Jesus my Lord, or even grudgingly as one who hates him but cannot fail to admit, Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And it's because Jesus humbled himself that the Father gave him this greater glory. Christian, know that Jesus is our example in humility, but also the example of the path to true glory. God will honor those who humble themselves like Christ. See, pride wants you to grasp for power to grasp for a place of privilege, to to grasp for glory, to to reach and take it for yourself, to to, to want recognition, to want first place. Pride wants glory now at the expense of others. And pride rarely gets that, though, or rarely keeps it, because this is God's world and it runs by God's rules. But those who humble themselves in obedience and imitation of Christ, he will exalt Listen to Luke 14, 11. Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. This should encourage you to seek humility. Are you fearful that your gifts and talents and insights will go unnoticed? Are you afraid that you will go unrecognized? That your name will be forgotten unless you exalt yourself, unless you make your mark? Right, that if you don't do it yourself, it'll never be done. I know especially as you get older, you begin thinking about your legacy. I think it's a good thing to think about. But do you think that you'll be forgotten unless you exalt yourself and draw attention to your accomplishments? Trust God. God sees your faith. He sees your work. He sees your value. Humble yourself, and at the proper time, He will exalt you. You don't have to fear that your life's going to be wasted or your efforts are going to be unimportant or if your life is hidden. You don't have to become an influencer. They will all be forgotten. You may be afraid that, you know, the things that you do in secret in the prayer closet, the hours you spend in prayer before the Lord that no one sees, the time you spent praying, the time you spent um, reading God's Word, the time you spend doing all those things that no one sees, do you desire to know how spiritual you are? Do you, do you feel tempted? Oh, maybe, maybe I should Instagram that I'm reading my Bible. Then everyone will know. You don't have to do that. God knows. Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. The Father knows he will glorify you. 
Becky, where are you at? Maybe she left. Maybe she's teaching right now. I don't know if I see her, but the Lord must be putting the same thing on her heart as he did mine because I wrote this in my notes earlier that there are some jobs that bring visible attention. Some jobs are very visible. Some jobs have business cards and websites and titles and offices and nameplates. Other jobs do not. Particularly, I think about mothers and stay-at-home moms maybe in particular. Do you ever wonder that or believe that, that your work is somehow lesser because you're not known? No one gets a paycheck or a promotion for being a mom. But God values your work. As you serve your children, do so with joy and with humility. And I think there will be more glory and fame for godly, faithful, humble moms who spend their days changing diapers and scrubbing applesauce off the walls than those who make a great name for themselves in pride, building this career and wealth and fame based on pride. Yours will be the greater glory. Christ, who made himself a servant and washed feet and gathered lambs, understands your task. The God who, who exalted him will likewise exalt you in your humility. So Christian, as I close, think rightly of yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but have a right assessment of yourself as God sees you. But also take the further step like Jesus did. A, a right assessment Jesus had was, I belong in glory. But he took a further step. I will become a servant of all to the glory of God. And I will trust that in the proper time, he will exalt me. Christian, that's the path of humility. That's how we have healthy relationships in our homes and in our church. If we're going to have unity, we must be humble as Christ was, preferring others, considering one another as more significant than ourselves, and actually treating them that way. If we do this, if we don't seek glory for ourselves, we humbly do God's will, he will exalt us in the proper time and grant us unity. I'm going to invite the worship team up now. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are thank you for this time. We are thank you that you sent your Son. Though he belongs in the glory of heaven, that for a time he humbled himself, becoming anonymous. Lord, not seeking to win the prizes of the world, even when tempted by the devil to receive the glory of this earth, he said no, because there is a greater glory that I desire. Lord, help us to be like Jesus in this. Lord, to voluntarily lower ourselves to consider the needs and the concerns of our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can be healthy. I pray for the families that are struggling right now that are broken because of pride. Would you grant repentance, Lord, and help fathers and mothers and, and, and children to be humble and bring healing because of it. I pray that there will be no root of bitterness or pride in our churches today, in, our, in this church. I pray that you would be glorified and honored among us. In Jesus' name, amen.